My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. When we think of our life with the Messiah, what, what comes to mind? Well, we should recognize that he is, he is our life. Without him, you know, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have the foretaste of, of the blessings. We have fellowship. We have just the joy, a heart that loves the scripture. All because of Messiah? What's that? All because of Messiah? All because of Messiah. Yeshua, Messiah, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, yo. It's Wednesday, January 16th, 2019. Just started Taekwondo. Getting some kicks in, you know. My name is Caleb Hay. My name's Rob, and I'm trying not to cough. <laughs> <laughs> the Hoff trying not to cough. What up, brother? It looks I like I feel we've... a little bit. I was out working in the yard early yesterday morning because the sun was out, and I thought, oh, it's really pretty, and I got to trim some branches. And I had a stack of branches, and I'm like, I got to go inside. And then the rest of the day, I'm like, <clears throat> cough, cough. So I had to move off the couch. <laughs> I had to get off the couch. <laughs> now I can't breathe. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> oh, man. I got to tell you, I forgot to write an intro. It's the we little need, things that you forget about. We don't need no <clears throat> intro. I'll tell you what, we're making connections already in the uh, chat room. Looks like Sparky's from London, Ontario. Cool. And it looks like Paul, who we know well, is from Paris. Ontario, that is, not France. Okay. So we've got Paris and London, but it's not in Europe. It's Correct. in North America. Right. Yeah, and Rob and I are uh, talking, you know, we're talking about going up there. We haven't even locked in details yet, but I'll tell you what, we're excited about it. We're talking about travel time, and one of the things we want to do on this Messiah Matters tour is take the load off of our families a little bit, which sounds, I don't know. It's just, you know, traveling is just hard when you're, you know, when you have young children and whatnot. So, you know, um, we're trying to make it so that we're gone for 24 hours at a time. Now, London, Ontario, well, London around there, um, Ontario in general is not a 24 hour trip. That's going to be a, you know, that's going to be a, th- that's going to be a weekend for sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's a long way to go. And it, it, we don't want to feel super rushed. Well, not only that, but the people up there are fantastic. And it's gorgeous. I got to say, you know, I've made jokes on this show before about my time in Ontario. But uh, I got to say, it was some of the most gorgeous uh, farm and field country I think I've ever seen. It was just absolutely spectacular. Cool. And to be honest with you, since we flew into G- Detroit, we had to drive quite a while to get up there. And... uh then we were about, what, hour and a half, two hours away from the venue, back and forth, back and forth. So we got in a significant amount of driving. And so uh, you got to see some. Yeah, some, you just uh, take it all in. You know Landscape there, right on. Yeah. Okay, occasionally I'm going to be muting and then coughing. <laughs> and there goes the mute. 
There we okay. go. Okay. Okay. Well, um, man, we got so much to talk about. I don't even think we need to chit chat here. Um, yeah, me... we do. We've got uh, stuff that we didn't even plan on came on our radar yesterday, right? Uh, Are yeah, we doing and, that? You know, I'll tell you what. Uh, I'm having trouble, a little bit of trouble with my computer here. Hang on just a second. No, I don't want to upgrade um, uh, my show notes. Sorry, I don't have my show notes in front of me. Because before we came on the air, um, it, I, we, I was having audio issues. And it, and it sounded like on the intro we were having some audio issues as well. I thought I got them all fixed, and I apologize to anyone if it sounds a little weird. Let me know in the chat room. I'm getting a little occasional scratch. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is. I don't. So basically, what happened? Some for some reason, my computer. I have two computers on uh, in front of me right now, and I've got three screens. Basically, one of my computers decided that it didn't like my audio input, so it switched over to a cam- my camera audio, which that will not work. And so uh, then I I didn't realize it, so I couldn't figure out why I wasn't getting audio. The whole thing's I don't know. Anyway, I'm, this is why I'm not an audio engineer. Because I can't, I'm so frustrated with, I get so frustrated with the audio problems. Okay, um, let's start with this. I want to start. We got to do another follow up on the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to punt this right. over yeah, to do. you. Basically, somebody wrote in. Our good friend in Singapore wrote in and said, uh, "Okay, fair enough. Part of part of the ten ten words is not in in imperative form, like you shall have no other or you." You should, there, there will be no other gods before you or before me. Um, those kind of things. Right. But what about the things that seem to be like imperatives? Like you shall honor your father and mother or um, honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So these kind of things seem to be more imperative form. And so I will now punt over to our language expert, uh, Rob Van Hoff. Go ahead. Yeah, the, the, so last week we talked about the the what we think in King James, thou shalt not, right. right? Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt have no other, right? That sort of thing, all the nots. And we talked about how they're in the, the Hebrew construction is al, al plus the, the imperfect, right? You will not, right? Al tignov, right? etc. cetera. Um, and I had in the, the back of my mind, I'm like, okay, we have to be sure to talk about the, remember the Sabbath and honor your, uh, parents commandment because those are part of the 10 words but they're not in the the negative form they're in the do right so of the 10 words you have eight of them are for you know lack of a better way to say it don't do's and the two of them are do's and the two do's are the shabbat commandment and then the honor your father and mother commandment and so I had it in my mind that we needed to address those. And then uh, Asher texted and said, hey, you guys didn't even talk about those. What do you think about that? I'm like, you know, we got, as it always is, we start playing ping pong and, and <laughs> you know, the ball flies off the, the table every once in a while. So uh, I thought it'd be we good to so, just to go back. Last week, we were so in the weeds on so many things. We talked about we talked about everything from Mormonism all the way through to uh, to like two house. The, it was we were all over the place. Anyway, yeah. keep going. Going. So uh, just if you didn't listen to last week's show, basically we were talking about this word command and how it's a, it's a totally acceptable word. But right. we talked about, you know, in the Torah, they're called the 10 words. There is a word for command, mitzvah, right? From the verb uh, tzavah, tzivah, to command. And that's not the way the 10 words are framed. And so 
Although we did talk about that in the, you know, by the first century common era, uh, AD, we have the word entole in Greek used, which can mean um, an order, a warrant, an injunction. Uh, and so it's not just this word command. Well, uh, because in grammar, when we talk about a command form, we talk about a what we call the imperative or the command form, uh, a grammatical form of a verb. And that's not what's being used in the 10 words. So anyway, so last week we talked about the, the you will nots. Today, I just wanted to point out a little thing and then we can move on. And uh, this, of course, we have the 10 words in both Exodus 20 and where else? Deuteronomy 5. And so if you do, if we look at Deuteronomy, uh, or sorry, Exodus 20, verses 8 and verses 12. So 28 is uh, the Shabbat command. 2012 is the honor. And then the parallels in the uh, the 10 words of Deuteronomy is Deuteronomy 5.12 and Deuteronomy 5.16. Okay, so that's where we're looking. Well, if we let's zero in then on the Shabbat command first. So that'll be Exodus 20, verse 8, and then Deuteronomy 5.12. Here, it's this word zahol. Zahol is what we say remember. Zahol et yom ha-shabbat le-kadisho. Uh, remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Um, the word zahol here is what we call an infinitive absolute. It's not actually, even in Hebrew grammar, it's not called an imperative. It literally is like remembering. It would be something like remembering the Sabbath day or something so like that. So it's still it's, not a command in a command form. You shall. It's more like remember this. Like do, instead of do this, it's remember this. But it's, it's grammatically, it's, there would be a way to, in Hebrew for it to be an imperative. Remember something. And this is, a, it's strange because it uses this, what we call this infinitive form remembering the Sabbath day. And it's hard to translate. Um, and, and the same thing in Deuteronomy 5.12, except it's not zahor, it's shamor, which is guarding, protect the Sabbath day. So shamor and zahor both are what we call infinitive absolutes. They too are not imperatives. And then if we look at the Exodus 20.12 and the parallel in 5.16, we have kabed, uh, kabed et uh, avichavet Amecha, that is honor your father and your mother. The same thing is true here. Kabed, while some will say, oh, this is, an, this is in fact an imperative, honor. Well, it, there's no way to show that it is an imperative because it's the exact same form of the infinitive absolute. So this is a real grammatical minutia here, um, but there's basically generally true for all 10 words is that uh, the command form is unique here. There are other places in the Torah where we, where we will see like Zahor, like remember Amalek, remember in, in Exodus. Right. Um, it uses this infinite absolute. Um, and so, and maybe there's been scholars that are uh, really uh, knowledgeable about this, have written about it, and it just hasn't been on my radar. So I'd be interested to hear if, if anybody finds anything. So but but basically, it's not an imperative. None of these are what we call imperative forms in Hebrew grammar. So uh, Helen asks, and this is a great question. So what's the practical take home here for a neophyte? Basically, uh, this comes back for me to uh, a work done by Meredith Klein. And Meredith Klein has, I've said often that he's one of my, he, he was one of my favorite people to read. 
Uh, Dr. Klein uh, has written many books. Actually, uh, one of our producers, uh, LaRue Miller, who's in the chat room right now, she, uh, she purchased and gave me a gift of a book by Dr. Klein on the book of Zechariah. Also a fantastic book. But uh, Klein is, is probably best well-known. I would, I would think he's probably best well-known for his work on covenants in the ancient Near East. And he did work um, on the Caesar and Vassal treaties. And basically, uh, one of his books called Treaty of the Great King, which is on the book of Deuteronomy, talks about how Deuteronomy is in the form of a renewal suzerain vassal treaty. It's a renewal mm-hmm. treaty, a renewal covenant. And what is it a renewal of? So in this book, he talks about what it's a renewal of, and he looks at Exodus and the 10 words as the, co- as the first covenant. Moses goes up onto the mountain. God makes a suzerain vassal treaty, and he tracks how the ten words are a are in treaty form of the time period of the suzerain vassal treaty. It, it and I defines, think the, it defines the covenant relationship. Right, it defines behaviors that are expected and demanded. I mean, right. that are that are. It defines the terms of the of the covenant. Right, but I think the my point here is that the language that's used. Is not arbitrary, right? Right. And so the the reason that the, that this kind of conversation matters is be is for these deeper conversations. Now, uh, for Helen, this might be a little bit outside of the realm of maybe what you're studying now or or whatever. But as we study the Torah and we go deeper and deeper and deeper, the it's almost like an onion. The layers come off and off and off until you get down to these. You know, people might not even know what uh, what a suzerain vassal treaty is. But if you ever have the chance to uh, study Caesar and Vassal treaties, and I would highly recommend uh, Meredith Klein's wonderful work, Treaty of the Great King, um, it's this is where this conversation really takes hold. Okay, give me one more second. Um, so let's go back then. I want to say thank you really quick to our producers, all of our producers. If you'd like to help produce the show, you can go to torresource.com. Uh, go to media and then click on Messiah Matters. And there's information on that page about how to become a producer, a credited producer. Uh, so thank you to all of our producers. And we also want to thank all of our supporters. Um, our supporters and our producers are what makes this show continue on every single week. You can become a supporter for as little as $5 a month and gain access to Messiah Matters More. And there should be another Messiah Matters More video up um, tomorrow for our supporters. Okay. And if you, no matter who you are, if you want to be part of the conversation, you can do so. Oh, wrong button, but okay. I will take that one. Seahag at TorahResource.com. Seahag at TorahResource.com. And let's try this one instead. Oh, wait. My, uh, for some reason, my camera's going really slow today. I'm getting, I'm getting choppy. I'll have to fix all this throughout the week. You can call our comment line, 253-465-3205. That's 253-465-3205. You can also comment on our videos and that is exactly what a uh, young gentleman did his name was Bensi I think Betsy and Bensi anyway I want to give a little bit backstory to this before we launch into it because I was not only confused but I didn't realize (laughs) I was responding to this guy over and over and over again from his original picture on his YouTube it looked like he is an Orthodox and or Hasidic Jew. 
Um, and he obviously does not believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. He was very critical of that. Um, he continues to say false Messiah in uh, regards to our belief. Um, so initially he had commented, and this brought it all together for me. Once I realized the same guy, then it, then it made sense. He changed his profile picture in between. Okay, so he comments on a video that we did on the houses of Hillel and Shammai. Now, this was done several years ago, and basically what we, what I had said, not not Rob, but what I had said is, I wonder if Hillel and Shammai were actual historical people. Now, I got a lot of flack for this. I got a lot of flack for this. Because my, my idea was, okay, the Mishnah and the Talmud, written pretty late, considering 300, 400 years after the, the Apostolic Scriptures are written is when the Mishnah is written, and my I like at the time my idea, and I don't know if I necessarily believe this. It was more I was trying to kick it around, um, but basically the idea the idea that I had was okay. You have two people, you know. Uh, basically, how do we how do we uh, explain two different like opposing views? We want to explain something through two opposing views. We'll do that through Hillel and Shammai. Okay, whether or not they're real people or not, who knows. And my point was basically that we don't know necessarily of Hillel and Shammai outside of the Mishnah. Well, this person switches. Uh, he, the reason I was confused because he switched videos and continued to comment on the first video. Anyway, with that said, so he says, can you sustain your false Messiah with historical evidence? No. And then he makes multiple uh, uh, quotes from various different people. And now I understand what he's saying. He's saying, in other words, okay, if you want to take the line that that uh, Hillel and Shammai weren't real people, then you have to take the line that maybe Yeshua wasn't a real person either. Okay, I understand what you're, what he's saying, and he's not saying that Yeshua wasn't a real person. He's saying that outside of the Gospels and outside of uh, you know basically the apostolic scriptures, you don't have much mention of Yeshua. Uh, now, granted, I would say you have more mention than you do of Hillel and Shammai, not the point. I guess, for, but but the, here's the difference I see. Now, I'm not, con once again, I think that Hillel and Shammai certainly could have and probably were real people. Are the quotes in the Mishnah and the Talmud from Hillel and Shammai actually from them? No, I don't think so. I think that it's from schools and or maybe just trying to make a point. Why do I say that? And he, this person doesn't have to agree with me. Why do I say that? I say that because I see the Mishnah and the Talmud as responses more than anything else. They're trying to respond to the fact that assimilation is happening from Jews into Christianity. There's the rise. First of all, the temple's gone. This is very, you know, this is a... Basically, people people don't know what it's a to kind, do. It. You can kind of think of it as an attempt to build an alternative to the temple with based on scraps of things that were from the first century, right? And to resist the gospel at the same time, right? And one of the things that I think is it has not been there's not been enough work done on this is the idea that the Mishnah responds to Christianity a lot. And we've talked about this multiple times on this show. For instance, the Afikomen at Passover. I mean, come on. Afikomenos. Melito of Sardis was the first person to use this term. It means the coming one. 
Um, I it's think a Greek, it's a Greek term, right? Right. And I think that I think that uh, I think that the Mishnah now incorporates something to say we had it first. There's a lot of this going on. You know, the, the whole thing about, uh, you know, if a stream goes up, starts uh, reverses and goes upstream, can we say it's of God? No. What if the walls bow out? No. I think that these are all we can see all of these things being related to a response to Yeshua and the Gospels. Sure, sure. And so, um, you know, a fig tree gets uprooted and thrown. Well, anyway, um, the point is, is that one of the reasons that I think that the Mishnah could be using um, fictitious people, which I'm not saying necessarily they do. I'm just saying the idea of Hillel and Shammai being these great schools in the first century. I think that the rabbis are using something as a response to Christianity and in order to uphold and keep Judaism alive after the temple is gone. Whereas the Gospels are not that that way. The Gospels are a biographical narrative of the Messiah on earth. And Paul afterwards talking about what has happened now. From multiple witnesses. Right, exactly. Uh, and, and not only that, not all texts about Yeshua from the first, you know, from the first couple centuries are all, quote, orthodox. Right, you have the Gospel of Thomas. You have, you have uh, uh, the infancy stories. Right, you know all these different stories and lore about this person that aren't part of. They're not inspired. Um, you know, and then you have the passages from Josephus, and the scholars have really, you know, they've done surgery on that to try to like parse out, you know, what what did Josephus actually write? And because some claims, oh, you know, Christian copyists later inserted it to, to make it look like Josephus was a source, you know, so there's fraud claims of, uh, uh, you know, accusations of fraud on the, on the basis of scribes. Um, but here's the other thing, Caleb, another side to this, that there are in certain messian, you know, what I would call like super, I don't know, is there such thing as ultra, uh, ultra, orthodox messianic you know like people who believe that they don't look at it the way we're talking about it at all they think the mishnah fully existed and that yeshua fully adhered to it and that there's no conflict at all like there there are people in the messianic world who observe a a, a halakhically stringent lifestyle committed to the full orthodox halakha binding nature as if it's binding from Moses, right? And they say there's no conflict. Right. Because they're saying this is what Yeshua did. And uh, and and then one of their arguments is there's nowhere in the Mishnah, nor in the Talmud, where it's forbidden to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. And, now, and some will even say, well, the Mishnah, you know, Halakha doesn't really care what your opinion is on things. Halakha is about behavior. It's not about your thought life. It's not about you know, what, what you think about this or that. It's, it's about, it's about your behavior. And so the people of that thought, uh, say, okay, so the Shulchan Aruch, for example, is a, a binding legal code, you know, from the 16th century that, uh, that is, uh, basically endorsed by God. You know, it's a codification endor uh, to make, try to bring the, the bulk of, of rabbinic halakha into a manageable kind of encyclopedic volume so that people can live a, a, 
a pious, you know, uh, Mishnah or rabbinic authorized lifestyle. And they think that there's no conflict with that and belief in Yeshua. So actually, what do you think about that? Michael, Michael and I were talking about this in the office before we went on air, basically. And he, he was saying, you know, that I know people and I do, too. I know people who are convinced that Yeshua was basically living out what was, you know, uh, was following the Mishnah. In other words, that the Mishnah was not only extant in the first century, but that Yeshua was was uh, was keeping parts of the Mishnah. Right. I mean, there is no as, as if it's uh, that this is like this is authorized by God. Right, and that and that and that Yeshua's uh, you know that Yeshua is actually um, keeping it. So, what would you tell somebody who says, "Look, the Mishnah is binding." It, the, what the sages say is true. This it, it goes all the way back to Moses. It's an authorized oral tradition. Yeshua uh, uh, behaved in accordance with it, and it's obligatory on Jews, not on Gentiles. Well, I would say there's, there's so much to unpack there. First of all, we don't have the Mishnah come around until at least 300. I think it's later than that, but at least 300 A.D., right? And so it's, I mean... It, it seems like it's a, uh, a lot of it is a response to Christianity and the fall of the temple. We know that parts of it were not around. I mean, Perkei vote didn't come around until it's the latest book added to the Mishnah. That's, not, that's number one. Yeshua speaks against the traditions of man uh, overriding the tradition, you know, the commandments of God specifically. That's another one. And, um, you know, I, I think that... Uh, one of the bigger ones for me is we had our oral tradition. We as Christians and or whatever you want to say, uh, believers in the Messiah, we have our, uh, our, our, oral, our oral Torah. It was written down in the first century by the apostles and by Paul. It's called the Apostolic Scriptures of the New Testament. And it is binding. So why would you take... So, I mean, in my view, we have two oral traditions. There's the oral tradition made in the first century by the believers of Yeshua, which God inspired and made the apostolic scriptures. And then you have one that comes around 300 years later, somewhat as a response to it, by Judea, by rabbinic right. Judaism, or right. what is becoming rabbinic Judaism. And the claim is, we had ours first, it just wasn't right. written down. Right. And and But this claim is made, I think, to try to say, look, the, the don't follow the Christians— they don't know what they're talking about. We had it first. But the point is, is it's made from, you know, these traditions and rules, while some of them sure might have been extant in the first century. The Mishnah itself was written, I think, as a response to Christianity in many places, not across the board, but in many places. To be able to, re to, to stop assimilation and to stop conversion into Christianity. And to, and to give an answer for how, how do we retain some sort of community identity without a temple, without uh, the central part of the Torah, which is the the priesthood in operation. Right. Right. And, you know, honestly, the, the further you go in, in uh, and uh, this is not to put down Judaism in, in any way. I mean, you have the rise of Christianity, which I think is, you know, diverges from what Yeshua wanted and what Yeshua speaks of in many ways into Catholicism, which I think also has many, 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 many horrible, horrible issues that need to be dealt with. And the same goes for rabbinic Judaism. You have rabbinic Judaism 
and the rise of rabbinic Judaism, they're both kind of going in the same, you know, when when the Baal Shems are, are, um, are going around and, and trying to heal people, you have the same kind of thing going on in Catholicism and, and Christianity. You have, um, you know, mysticism rising at the same time in Judaism and Christianity. You have right. the idea of interpretation and, and pardes rising at the same time as the Christians are coming up with their five laws of interpretation, which pretty much mirror. So, I mean, I'm not saying that Judaism just... Not to up. mention the, the big influence that... Islam had on medieval Jewish thought. Exactly. Uh, Sufism and 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 the a lot of the mysticism comes from uh, prior Muslim mysticism. Right. So I'm so, not I'm not putting down Not we're into the Middle Ages now, but but yeah. I'm not putting down Judaism. All I'm saying, you know, Christianity and Judaism are essentially being created at the same time. Rabbinic Judaism and Christianity are being created at the same time. And I think that both, not just Judaism, but Christianity is responding to Judaism. Judaism is responding to Christianity. So in my mind, what we go back to is the scriptures. We go back to Torah, we go back to the prophets, and then we go back to the apostolic scriptures. This is our rock. And this is why Sola Scriptura is, you know, the reformers, even though obviously late in the 1600s, you know, the idea of coming up with Sola Scriptura against the church the scriptures are the final authority in all practices, you know, of, 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 of theology and, and practice. Well, there's a reason why this is so important. This, this is a reform back to what Yeshua is teaching. Now, I, st- I think that the church obviously is still reforming. We've talked about this many, many times. And, and Rob so wonderfully brought up the title Reforming Christian. So wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> but it's I'm true. Certainly not the first person to say that. No, of course not. But the point is, is that reforming Christian. This is this is perfect because I have also contended that we that the rise of Torah observance among Christianity is a continuation of the Reformation, a natural continuation of the Reformation, and it will continue. And what's this a function of? This is a function of each of us as disciples of Yeshua. We're renewing people, right? Right. I mean, regularly, I'm renew. Any theological shifts that I undergo or um, challenges to built-in, you know, ruts in the road with theology or institutions, if I have a protest, back to like the Protestant, it should, that that outward protest and standing my ground on a certain issue, if that's not born of the renewal of my heart and mind by the Holy Spirit in Messiah, then that's worthless protest. That's that's, That's yelling, that's like making noise right that's foolishness so any any of that ongoing re- reformation it, uh it's a it's it's part of the picture of us being renewed day by day but um if it's not born in convictions about our growth in messiah <laughs> growing in messiah plug for caleb and lacatia oh we'll talk about that um, in a second if it's not born of that then it then uh it's not legit, you know? Right. So uh, to assume that that things should just, like, that theological, you know, orthodoxy was established once and for all, and now all of a sudden men control everything, and that there's never going to be any kind of real prophetic protest against traditions of men creeping in and, and starting to, to uh, govern 
even, you know, people who claim to be believers in Yeshua that, you know, that's giving the, that's too naive about the nature of the sin, sinful flesh. right? Right. I mean, Yeshua put it up so clearly that we, it is, that's this high bar. We are to discern the word of God from the traditions of man. And that's easy to remember, but that's not easy to do right. in practice because a lot of this stuff is really, you know, all the parts have broken and spilled and we have to go and like, we have to sort things out. You know, um, there's work involved. There's labor involved in, in sharpening that discernment. You don't get it at a drive through coffee shop. You know, you get it by, by labor in the word and wrestling through issues as you're trying to live out in a local community. And as you're trying to grow in skills pertaining to how to study the Bible, you know, and it's a, and it, and it's not for the faint of heart, right? Cause it's a lifetime. You're, you're, it's like you put your hand to the plow and you go and that's it, you know? And, and, uh, you know, and people after a year, Oh, this is too hard or, you know, whatever. Well, you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking right there. You're fine. Okay. So I want to go back to something that, uh, and we'll, we'll switch, uh, topics here in just a second. I want to go back to the, the plug that, uh, Rob just gave me my wife, my beautiful wife, Lacacia and I have decided that we're going to start a, uh, video cast on YouTube, a program on YouTube. Um, that's going to focus on relationships within the body of the Messiah. Now that means everything from parent, child, husband, wife, all the way up to personal with Yeshua and personal with God. Um, and so basically, uh, we don't have a launch date yet and we probably won't for at least a couple months still to come. Do you have a lunch date? Oh, but what we do have is we start. <laughs> what we do have is we started a uh, we started a YouTube page, and you can find that in the, the description of this video, uh, of the full video of uh, Growing Messiah. Um, please go uh, visit that YouTube page and subscribe to it. We need. Um, we're trying to get a specific amount of subscribers before we move on to other things. Um, right now, we are creating content. We're starting to record shows. We want a backlog of shows um, because I travel for work and because life gets in the way sometimes. So we want to be able to continue to um, release shows even when life things happen. But for now, um, for now, please go to the link in the uh, in this show on YouTube and go to Growing in Messiah is the name of the channel. And you can uh, subscribe to our YouTube page. We would really appreciate it. Uh, yeah. Okay. So that's the plug. And I'm going to keep plugging it throughout. And we will release uh, updates and more. We'll release a first show at some point, even before the launch of the actual, just so people can get a flavor of kind of what we're going to talk about and, and uh, who my wife is. She's, she's a delight. She's so fun to talk to. She, and yeah, I mean, I have to do it all the time. I get to do it all the time. You have to. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> it's funny because uh, some people will be like, oh, you know, have you, you know, what'd you think of what he said on to my wife? They'll say, what would you think of what he said on, on Messiah Matters, you know, two shows ago? And I think Rob and I both have expressed that our wives do not listen to this show. 
my wife my wife always says i hear him all day long why do i want to listen to him when he's not here <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a great line uh it's it's funny yeah it's true too <laughs> anyway okay let's move on what we else had, did we have to talk about today oh, oh man it, the list goes on there's so many things and we didn't i didn't even put down everything here um which which means that there's certainly uh good content for uh messiah matters more for our supporters okay um, let's go to this one, man. You raised so many questions from your comments. This is a comment that we were talking about the, um, a, a coming temple. Should Christians believe in a coming temple and should, you know, and what will that look like? Millennial temple, those kind of things. So he says, man, you raised so many questions from your comments. The question you read was all about the temple in reference to the millennium and post second coming. But then you went on to say that if a temple was built again, basically, that we would have a need to participate. So, are you saying that if the, if the non-Yeshua-embracing people who are in Israel, the Temple Institute, for instance, built a third temple, that we, the body of Messiah, should participate? Now, this is a, this is a very good question. It's a very sticky question, and we could, we, can, we could be all over the place on this one. Boy, yeah. And the, that's and the, a, I mean, just imagine the things we had. We had a chat on this on Shabbat several Shabbats ago. Like, would we be obligated to go because the Torah commands, you know? And um, I had to say, you know what? I I would say yes and no both because I don't know. It's a it's a mind blowing concept yeah, to me. That, that's where I'm at. Primarily because I'm getting a feedback there. Oh, it's gone now. Um, because the things that would have that it would have to transpire before that temple was finished would transform the whole world's view on everything. You know right. what I mean? There would be we'd be talking mass if you ever think of like mass consciousness or whatever. A you'd upheaval in the Middle East, right, with respect to the the removal of what's been on that Temple Mount now for over what a thousand years. 1200 years um and then the building of of the temple i mean all this is i i don't i can't predict what my thoughts would be or what i how i would even understand things because there would be so many tremendous shifts in in world in the world on the world stage and so i so the, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know if, yeah, I mean, boy, I, and I'm not an end times guy. I don't, I'm not one. I usually, yeah, if someone comes to me with this kind of question, I say, you know what? I, this is not an area that I focus on. <laughs> I don't have any good answers for you. I, I know that might be disappointing. I'm sorry, but I would say, beware. If you're asking these questions, there are a lot of people that are going to, that are selling books and things like that. And when you, and I've, back in the nineties, when I was following this stuff, I, I dove in enough to realize that people were selling sensationalism because they could, they'd all sounded good, but they couldn't all, they can't all be right. Right. And so the question is, they're all making money. They're all touring. I, I don't know who to believe. I got to learn to take the plank out of my own eye, you know, and then I just got to focus on back to the renewing my mind in the scriptures and by the spirit and my life and my, you know, so here's here's where yeah. I'm at. I mean, 
there's a lot of there's a lot of question that comes comes up about this. First of all, could a temple be built without the Messiah coming back? Well, physically, I think a temple probably could be yeah, built. Hypothetic, yeah, hypothetically, sure. it could be. Um, so that's number one. Number two, would we as believers w- want to go to that temple? Well, here's the one. Here's the one reason I would say that there's a possibility that we would want to go to that temple and should go to that temple. And once again, I'm not set on this. This is, I, you know, I've I've thought about this a lot, but. The point is that Yeshua is in the temple. It doesn't seem like the, the, the like the Shekinah is resting in the temple. It doesn't seem like we have the presence filling the temple like we do in the previous temple. We don't even know if the Ark was there, right? And we've talked in about the second that. temple. It wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And uh, so, uh, so, but Yeshua continues to go and he participates. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. So. If if Yeshua to and they reject him, right? The people who are running the temple reject right. Yeshua, and he's still going and participating. So the question that I have is: Is that an example for us? In other words, if the temple and we're speaking in hypotheticals here, because like Rob said, for the for the temple to be built in Jerusalem, there. I mean, think of trying to move the mosque. Oh yeah, this. Oh, they wouldn't move it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they, would, they would level it, and then but, the Dome of the Rock. But thing. but what would that do for the in terms of the Muslim world and the upheaval that 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 oh the yeah world that, I mean would, that's right. So I mean, um, but let's here's just, here's another thing that if I may just say a few points. One is, I wouldn't be surprised if if that kind of radical thing happens. I think you know we see this in some of these Armageddon kind of movies, you know that it would be some sort of clock ticking right I, in other words i don't see i don't see a temple being built that isn't all, then all of us things start happening really quickly sure you know what i mean but on the other hand the building of a temple will not it doesn't solve the problem of why the temple was destroyed right exactly and the more the 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 weeping of yeshua over jerusalem while the temple still stood the reason for Yeshua's weeping is not solved by Orthodox Jews getting together with the Temple Institute or whatever and building a temple. That doesn't resolve right. the problem because Yeshua's <laughs> Yeshua's not part of their their imaginative horizon, right? Yeshua's not a uh, except as an anti form, as a as a paganism, right? In their in their religious worldview, <laughs> Yeshua doesn't have a, a a place now some would say oh well if they're committed to the halakha then <laughs> they don't need the gospel because jesus is there with them and he's actually they don't know it but he's there invisibly well okay well then he's but he's also guiding everybody in the world then i mean there so anyway there, there's it's a complex issue but, but, it, but I, also- I i my I, if i were just to say what do i stand on i'm pretty convinced that 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 a temple building a new temple won't solve the problem for yeshua's weeping over the temple before it would be destroyed it's it's more than that ultimately even though this conversation i mean it's shrouded in hypotheticals right and but hypothetically i don't i personally don't think that the temple would be rebuilt on the temple mount until the messiah returns i just don't think it's going to happen maybe it will but i just don't think it happens if it did happen if it did happen I don't think that they'd let us in. I don't think they're letting Christians and Messianics come in. Well, here's, a, here's the question that I want to ask. 
Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. This is what Yeshua is citing when he's, you know, knocking over the money changer tables and freeing the animals and stuff like that. And he says, you've made it a den of thieves. Okay. When does Isaiah 56 get fulfilled ultimately? You know, so maybe, maybe there could be a, uh, what if the people who are building the temple are believers in Yeshua? That they've, they've, you know, that Messiah does return and there is a, uh, an opening of the eyes, you know, a removing of the veil, so to speak, like Paul puts it. And they recognize Yeshua, you know, and then things, but, but in any way, in any of these scenarios, again, it's all speculative I, uh, in terms of timeline. It seems to me that there's going to be, the clock starts ticking like quickly, like things start moving fast. Um, but right now, from my experience, my limited experience, and from where I'm looking, it just, that's a, it, that would be a radical shift. I mean, I, you'd wake up from that day forward, you'd wake up in the morning, and the world, world would be completely yeah. exactly. changed. And so I can't anticipate what resources will I have? What, what will I, will we be fleeing? Will we be, have the ability to go? You know, there's all these things that I just don't know. I don't know. See, you know, and, and Peter brings up a, a fantastic verse, or do you not know that your body is a temple? We've talked about this temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Wonderful passage of scripture, first of all. Second of all, um, it, it, I can't help but wonder, you know, we talked about Judaism, what they were thinking after the temple fell. But the first believers had to be in the same predicament. You know, I know that a lot of Christianity, modern scholarship and, and, and well, just Christian scholarship in general has always said that, the, that by the time the temple fell, they, you know, the Christians weren't participating. I disagree with that fully. I don't think that that can be sustained. And I don't think it's, I don't think we see that from scripture. But the point is, is that the temple falls. And I think some of, the, of what's going on here uh, in this verse that Peter has so wonderfully uh, uh, given in the chat room, is that I think that Christianity, too, is dealing with this idea of what do we do without the temple? What does this mean for us? And Paul is, is trying to reassure, don't worry, we have the Holy Spirit. The, you know, the Holy Spirit is in you, and, and we still have the, the entrance into the, into the throne room of God through the high priest of Yeshua. So, I mean... I, I, but it's interesting to see how right. our, our worship of God does is not bumped. That record is not bumped with the right. removal of the temple. Right. And, but my, I guess my point is, is that there, I think that even in the apostolic scriptures, we see a continued need for the temple temporally. This is what I keep going back to the idea that, that, that there is still clean and unclean, you know, that, that corpse defilement is still a thing on earth in this temporal world and it doesn't go away and this is why i think we continue to have the uh the sacrificial system in the millennium and we've talked about this as well okay let's move on um this is a great one for rob because this is rob's done a lot of work on 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 this topic uh i'm certainly under, understanding the importance of a circumcised heart first and above the flesh but then also understanding that circumcision is still part of God's law. My question is, why does Paul make it a point to write 
that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised in Galatians 2.3. We've talked about this before, but it was a, oh, a couple years ago. Um, and so, yeah, why don't you take this one? A good question. That's in um, Galatians chapter 2, and Paul's talking about, in the end of Galatians 1 and into chapter 2, he's talking about these historical moments, right? And he's building a case for why we have to sharpen our, our skills so that we are um, we're living our lives as servants of God and that we're on the alert of fear, how fear of man grabs people and draws them away, right? Fear of man is what a big problem in the in Galatia, and that's why Paul's writing this letter. People are responding out of insecurity of whether or not they're really belonging to the family of Abraham, whether or not they, um, because they're not ethnically Jewish, and there's groups out, the Jewish groups that are saying, we are the, you know, the circumcision, and you are foreskins. You are, and, and foreskin, acrobustia in the Greek, is a derogatory term used within these, quote, circumcision circles as a, a, a label of shame and of right. uh, marking exclusion, that you're not a son of Abraham. So, I mean, the, the typical point here, and then this is just more broad, this doesn't address the question yet, but the... We have to remember why is Paul writing Galatians is because people who heard the gospel and believed, some of them are starting to follow teachings of people that are not promoting the truth of the gospel, but are promoting in in the most succinct terms, as Paul put it, fear of man. Right. And that they're they're gonna call each other righteous. Oh, you can join our club of righteousness and and we'll see you as righteous and we'll give you access to the Jewish uh, uh intellectual culture that we that we have in our little community here. And that looked appealing to people. And they and they really believed, well, maybe, maybe I don't belong. And Paul wants to underscore that belonging is not a work, a function of a work. Belonging to the family of Abraham is a matter of of Yeshua's action, what Yeshua did. Right. That's why, you know, at the end of chapter two, he says, who uh, you know, uh, who loved me and gave himself for me. Right. And, and then Paul says, if you belong to Messiah, then you are Abraham's seed. And there's according to the promise. Paul's like tying down. Look, Abraham trusted in God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And that was before he was circumcised. Right. Paul's really wanting to hammer that down, bringing just the clear message of the Torah and the clear chronology of the Torah into forefront so that these Galatians in Paul's absence, even though he had visited there, they can stand strong and grow in the fruits of the spirit while uh, kind of learning of the, the enemy's tactics and strategies for trying to undercut and make them doubt their own belonging. Okay. So that's kind of a bigger theme of, of, uh, of Galatians and why Paul's writing that in Galatians two, he's zeroing in on, on a situation where he went to Jerusalem and he, he's telling the Galatians, he says, when we went uh, this is verse three, even Titus, who is with me, um, being Greek. And so uh, the word Greek here, being Greek, um, means he was not Jewish. Okay. So Titus is a, is a not, not Jewish. It says he was not compelled to be circumcised. And so the, the verb here is forced, right? The main verb here, he was not forced. 
And then right. we have the infinitive to be circumcised. So one point to make is that it doesn't tell us whether or not Titus ever was physically circumcised. It only tells us that Titus was not forced. So two possible uh, interpretations on that front is the first is the popular. It's like, oh, I take this to mean that Titus remained kept, you know, kept his physical foreskin for the rest of his life. And he, you know, was a recipient of a letter later from Paul and, and did ministry among the Gentiles, etc. So that's the popular way. Uh, but equally valid would be to interpret this as Titus indeed did receive the, the sign of the covenant, circumcision, but it was not compelled. It was not forced by peer pressure. And that's the that's the issue with the Galatians, is that people saying, you do not belong into the fa- family of Abraham unless dot, 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 right? And, and in that is this circumcision. You do not belong. You're not an heir of the promise. You're not a child of right. God, right? You don't, God doesn't even, you don't even have a covenant with God unless you first are physically circumcised and whatever else hoops, because we know they had more than one just kind of, it wasn't just a rite of removal of the foreskin. It had to do with adopting this this map of the world where now you're part of the peritome and now you're no, you've removed the mark of shame. You've removed the mark of this acrobustia. Now, you can, now you're on the inside and you can call other people acrobustia and shame other people. And you've removed the anxiety of this cultural shame. Right. And Paul's saying that's, that is totally wrongheaded uh, to, to try to solve your anxieties about belonging by trying to join a club. You are to find your, your shalom in, that you, in the fact that you're in Messiah, that you're a new creation in Messiah and that he purchased you out of love. And now you're to behave in the world according to that same, uh, marching order. And so, um, I'm, I take it the, the latter. I take it that this does Galatians two, three does not tell us that Titus was never physically circumcised. It just tells us that Titus, um, was not forced and we have the same example with like uh, Acts 16. You could say, was was Timothy forced to be circumcised by Paul? Did Tim, or did Timothy want to be circumcised? Right. Timothy was a different situation. Certainly he bore shame in the community because they knew that his father was a Greek and his mother was Jewish. And now I know there's debate on whether the back to our original discussion today, the nature, what halakhic uh, things that we find later in the mission and beyond can actually be projected back in the first century. Some will say, oh, we'll see Titus was Jewish because his mother was Jewish. Well, in fact, if you follow uh, Shia Cohen, a major scholar of, of Judaica at Harvard University, who's written countless books, one specifically on circumcision and, and be, uh, what it means to be becoming Jewish, um, he says, no, in the, by the, in the first century, it was still patriarchal. Whether you were a Jew or not in the first century is based on who your father was, not your mother. It was a later rabbinic invention to make it mother. So there's a dis- dispute there in, in academics. The people who are more orthodox in their lifestyle have a, have a skin in the game to push the halakha back into history 
And so that's like the Lawrence Schiffman, like at, at he used to be at NYU. Now he's at, at Yeshiva University. He'll, he's going to say, no, matri- matriarchal principle goes way back. Shia Cohen, who comes from the more, a more conservative, a rabbinical kind of view in terms of faith commitment, um, says, no, the historical sources do not back that up. The historical sources show that patriarchal uh, genealogy was determined your if you were Jew or not. Anyway, so aside from that, even if we don't know the, which one it is, we know enough from Acts 16, the beginning there, that, that there was a, a kind of shame that Timothy bore in that he was, he was a marginal person to the community because they all knew that his father was Greek. And so they probably told stories about his mother or whatever. And, but we also know later where Paul writes, you know, that his, not only Timothy's mother, but his grandmother taught him scriptures when from his right. youth. So Timothy grew up with a, in a little bit of the, one foot in each world. He, he knew the scriptures. He hadn't physically been circumcised. His father, he maybe was estranged from his father. Paul kind of comes and, and becomes a spiritual father on this earth kind of thing, you know, and, and taking a fatherly role and circumcises him, which is what a father, uh, you know, is in the commandment is to do. Um, and I don't think that is now all of a sudden, I mean, if we took traditional Christian theology and in, in some, we'd say, Oh, now tight. Now Timothy's under the law. Like why right, would, right. why would Paul do such thing? Now he's just condemned. Didn't he just condemn Timothy? Well, no, because Timothy, I believe, wanted to be circumcised but he he wasn't going to do it for the wrong reasons right he wasn't going to go to those guys that were that that he felt excluded from in the local synagogue okay okay you guys i know you don't you know you think i'm a you know i'm a abandoned by my dad and i'm living with my mom and i haven't been circumcised but i'll tell you what would you guys accept me if you just you know will you guys circumcise me you know i don't think he i think the holy spirit kept timothy from doing that right so um, anyway, I know we're get, I don't know if I've even got back. I, I read that point, the main point here with Galatians 2, 3. I believe Titus did, in fact, um, get circumcised. Have, you know, yeah, get circumcised. And the point, what we take away here in two in Galatians 2, 3 is that it was not compelled. It was not a response to peer pressure. That's the whole point here in Galatians. If you're responding and your if your faith walk is a response of peer pressure, that's right. not new covenant. Right. That's not that's not resurrection life in Messiah. That's not understanding that the Messiah loved you and gave himself for you. And now you're to walk in, in his Torah. You know, that's um that's fear of man still. And he said, you know, I it, you know, he says in chapter one, you know, if I was still uh you know, afraid of man, I wouldn't be a servant of Messiah. Right. So um, I hope that's helpful. So Adam uh, says, I just got here. Can you guys start the show over? Uh, <laughs> Love it. Well, a uh, big congratulations to the Smith family. Yeah. They just added a new one. Is it Yacht? Yacht? No. Yael? No. He told me. He texted me. Sorry, Adam. I can't remember. How dare you? Oh, boy. Do you know, <laughs> Caleb? Uh, <laughs> yes, but I, yes, but I'm going to, I'm going to butcher his pronunciation, pronunciation of it. So I'm, I'm yeah, I, oh, I nailed it. Boom. I think they pronounce it Yale though. Yale, like the college. Yale. I think. Well, I'll tell you what, Yale and Yael 
are the same in Gamatria. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Okay, we had a lot. I, before we go, I want I want to uh, I want to run down a couple of things that we had. Evelyn had a question, and it's a really good question about First uh, Thessalonians four two through five. Um, and then we oh, had first that what is it? First Thessalonians four two through five. We might answer that on uh, Messiah matters more. And then someone else had one on John seven sixteen, um, and the idea that. Uh, uh, doctrine. What does he mean? What does Yeshua mean when he says it's not my doctrine, but the doctrine of the Father? We could answer that on um, on uh, Messiah matters more as well. And then we had another one, and I forgot to grab it on YouTube. And then we had somebody call in and ask a question as well. So we've got tons to answer, and uh, which is great. I love having a lot of content because um, it makes. It makes uh, preparing for the show easier, honestly, because we know exactly what we're going to go for. So um, I hope that this this whole conversation has, has uh, helped people in some way, shape, or form. Um, we sure appreciate everybody joining us. Uh, do me a favor. Go over to the Growing in, uh, in Messiah YouTube channel and subscribe to it. Um, and we will be po- my wife and I will be posting updates on that. And, uh, yeah, anything else before we go? Well, Adam said... Uh- did you guys already discuss Alter's translation? Um, we got that e- Jessica emailed us about that. And um, I personally uh, don't have a copy, right. but Adam shared a little bit with me. Just we had some back and forth asking, you know, I asked him, we picked his brain a little bit on what Alter was doing on some certain passages. Um, so I, I, I don't have a firsthand other than what Adam shared, I don't have a firsthand knowledge of, of it as a whole. That that NPR article that I put in the show notes said that uh, that he uh, intentionally tried to take out Christological language. I don't know oh, if that's sure. true yeah. or not, but it wouldn't surprise me. Well, yeah, I mean, because Alter, remember, he's a literary that his world is world literature, comparative literature. So right. he's coming from, and he, of course, Hebrew Hebrew literature more specifically. And that's in all history, all history of the use of the Hebrew language. So when he reads the Bible, he's reading it as a product of Hebrew language and literature. And he's going to bring a literary critical toolkit to it that you would take to Moby Dick or, you know, any, you know, any great work of literature. Um, And so it's not... um, He's not coming from a faith commitment. And so by doing that, he's kind of setting up a laboratory of his priorities and and things like claims that Yeshua is the Messiah is going to be totally scrubbed at the door right? Um, in that laboratory. So I don't think that that means there's no value. I think there's still going to be a lot of good value because he will and certainly point out things that are happening in the Hebrew that are going to be very beautiful and, and rich. Um, but at the same time, we, we don't want to be ignorant of his underlying ideological uh, commitment and that it's not on a faith. It's not a Yeshua centered view. So, so there, yes, I am hearing Rob's crackle and I apologize for that. Um, it looks like what we'll do is, I will have to figure out exactly what's going on with my system throughout the week. So we'll run some tests and try to lock it all in. Um, Yeah. We sure do hope that uh, this has been encouraging in some way for you. 
And one thing that we do hope is that our conversation today has done one specific thing, that is glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah matters. 